Welcome to another episode of Troped Out Podcast. I am Emma C. Wells. With me is my partner in crime, E.J. Winstrom. And this month we have author Malka Older with us. Malka Older is a writer, sociologist, and aid worker. Her science fiction political thriller, Infomocracy, was named one of the best books of 2016 by Kirkus, Book Riot, and The Washington Post. She is also the author of the sequels, Noel State and State Tectonics, and the full trilogy was nominated for the Hugo Award. She is also the creator of the serial Ninth Step Station and lead writer for the licensed sequel to Orphan Black, both currently running on Realm. Her short story and poetry collection and other disasters came out in late 2019. Her new release, The Mimicking of Known Successes, will be out March 7th. Welcome, Maka, to Troped Out. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So we typically kick things off by asking our guests, what are you reading and loving lately? Okay, so lately I'm going to take it broadly because I feel like I've read a bunch of terrific stuff lately. So I'm just going to give you like a really quick rundown of some things that I've enjoyed a lot. Perfect. (laughs) Uh, John Scalzi's Kaiju Preservation Society. If you have Mm -hmm. not read this, it is a romp and just super fun. Um, Sherry Priest's Flight Risk, which is the second one in her series about a a travel agent who solves murder mysteries using her ESP. (laughs) They're really fun and more down-to-earth than they sound like. A big shout-out to The Town of Babylon by Alejandro Varela, which is just an incredible like interrogation of immigration and race and the suburbs and just beautifully done because I could actually get through stuff that normally would make me want to strangle someone and it was I thought really excellent. The Left-Handed Booksellers of London by Garth Nix I thought was also a really fun action uh, supernatural book. I'm, I'm winding down I promise. Take your time we like to add to our TBRs. Killers of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayburn which is a fun like retiree female assassins go on the warpath. Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies, which it was tropetastic, really nice. And Richard Osman's the, the third in the, the Thursday Murder Club series, which I find really fun. And Melinda Lowe's A Scatter of Light, which is just like lovely and beautifully written and powerful. That all sounds incredible. <laughs> A quick run through of some of the, the things. Oh, wait, no, I have to add um, yeah. Meru by S.B. Divya, which is fantastic um just like far future hard sci-fi great relationships and the terraformers by annalee newitz which is also like similarly far future hard sci-fi but very different propositions and just really both fascinating books they weren't on my list because i had arcs so lucky you i've been hearing a lot about the terraformers in particular yeah both of them were fantastic really really Uh, fun and with a lot of big ideas incredibly that also covers a really broad range of different types of speculative fiction which is pretty amazing do you have anything though that i don't know if you've heard of the id list of tropes like tropes that just when you hear about them you're like oh i've got to read that every single time yeah i mean honestly this is gonna sound like i designed it just for my book promo but it's more like this is why i wrote my book but i i realized at some point that um sherlock holmes retellings are just total catnip for me and i don't really know why maybe it's like i imprinted early or something um but every time i hear like a you know a gender bent sherlock holmes or uh um, modernized Sherlock Holmes or something. You know, I think I just kind of really want to read it. Um, so then I wrote one. 
That's amazing. And I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more when we start talking about your new release. But when you talk about that, like Sherlock Holmes signature on a mystery, I think of like really brainy, really subtle little hints that no one else is picking up on, but are right on the page if you go back and check and that sort of thing. What what else would you put in that? I think there's that. Like, I think there's kind of a cerebral aspect to it. And like, they're mysteries that definitely focus on the mystery and not like gore or crime or horror, although they might have some elements of those. Um, but I think there are a couple of other things, because I really was trying to figure out why I was so into these. Um, and I will say there have been some excellent ones over time, but also, you know, lately I feel like there's been really a lot, um, and particularly like, the Sherry Thomas Lady Sherlock series, and um, also the Laurie King's uh, Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes. Um, and I also really liked the Enola Holmes books, which I thought were a lot better than the movie. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think the other things about it is there's something about neurodivergence, because you've got a character who's like very attuned to one particular sort of approach um, and devotes that to doing a certain thing. And in this way, it just thinks really differently from everyone around them. And that kind of, you know, this, this it's, it's something about genius. It's something about just thinking very differently and having a, a totally flipped approach to how you observe or deduct. And so I think there's something really interesting in that. And then the other thing I think is the relationship because all of these stories have some kind of partnership going on usually between someone who is, is neurodivergent in this specific way and someone who's pretty neurotypical and kind of um, mediates. And, but sometimes they're both, you know, more along those lines. It's, it varies a lot, but I think you have a relationship between two people who play different roles in all the action that they're going through. And that also can be really powerful. I really like that breakdown, actually. That seems spot on now that you've said it. And okay, I'm going to keep going with the neurodivergence because in Infomocracy, one of the core protagonists has what is called narrative disorder. And I know that you have described this before and you kind of talked about it in terms of tropes and how we interpret them and all of that. So I'd love to hear your explanation of how you came up with that, how you folded it into the story. Break all of that down. Sure. Um, Absolutely. It's a really fun and interesting thing for me because it definitely comes from my own brain. But it's also, you know, I I was working on this book and I was also just thinking about kind of what the future of stories would look like because we're in a time where there's so so much production of stories, right? Um, There's just, you know, there's more movies and books than anyone could read. And yet we keep looking for more, for new stuff, for remakes, for reboots, um, for sequels, for new stuff from our favorite authors, for new authors. Um, So there's this really like hunger for narratives. There's an addiction really, I think, certainly in myself. And some of this was influenced by a book I read at the time by a, a French sociologist called Frédéric Mantel, I think. I'll look it up. Um, but it's a book called Mainstream. And it's about sort of all the, the ways that narratives propagate around the world, like the way that they make a soap in Brazil and it gets shown in Bosnia. Or they make, you know, someone writes a manga in Japan and it gets turned into six different remakes across Taiwan, mainland China, and Korea of the same like story, but done differently each time and lots of other things. So I was thinking about sort of the way the future would feed this addiction. And I have a a very brief scene in the book about 
visiting a content factory where kids are like taking pieces of content and sort of putting them together like storyboards basically and just sort of sewing it um you know it's a, it's a sweatshop kind of um for narrative because we have this huge hunger for it and um so i was thinking about this and i and i was thinking about how in so often you know what is considered a cohesive um, mental or emotional syndrome really depends on the concerns of the time that you're in. So, you know, like you have these stories of people around the Fantasiac getting fugue state where they were so panicked by railroads and the speed of change that they would just kind of wander off with amnesia for a while. And of course, you know, we have a lot of discussion now about things like ADHD that that are, you know, sort of newly identified and are, are they things that come from our lifestyle or are they just that we are naming them and categorizing them differently now that we're concerned about attention? So I was thinking about that and I was thinking, you know, in this future world, have they realized that we are addicted to narrative and what does this look like and what does it do to our brains? Because we do have narrative kind of assaulting us from all directions, not just in the shows we choose to watch or the books we choose to read, but also in a lot of news articles that are really designed like narratives, you know, where they have that little hook at the beginning and then a different kind of hook at the end to take you back around, or, you know, advertisements that can really compress a whole narrative into 15 seconds because we're so familiar with them that they can cut out anything excess. And so thinking about how it makes us expect uh, certain things to be, to happen in real life because that's what happens in all the narratives we read. So. This is very long-winded, but basically with narrative disorder, there's two different parts to it, right? There's this addiction for narrative, and then there's this expectation that really comes from, from reading the same types of narratives over and over again. Uh, so it's less, less so if you, say, read through different cultures or different time periods. Um, but, you know, this expectation that, like, a meet-cute will lead to love, or that if you go up the stairs in the middle of the night, something's going to jump out at you or, you know, all of these sort of tropes, but I think also really tropes really broadly. And, and we just sort of expect because we've been trained by the pervasiveness of these narratives that to be true in real life as well. And in the book for the character, it's both a disadvantage because sometimes you expect things to be true that aren't. Obviously we are not living in stories. But also it can be an advantage because a lot of people have these same ideas and so you can sometimes figure out how people are subconsciously playing into them and use it as a way to kind of predict behavior. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting in infomography because it does impact Mishima's life. It really cracked me up when like the, the big inciting event occurs and her first reaction was to stab her lover who's in the room with her in the leg because he was obviously involved somehow. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like that's that's such like a clear storyline that could be. And so it was a fun little play with it. Uh, but also that sense that she a few times over feels this need to find a way to like sell her disorder as an advantage in her workplace, which I think, you know, certainly me having ADHD, others who have learning disorders like that feel a, a, a pressure to do or to hide it all together and not bring it up. I And so it resonated and it was kind of a, a very interesting perspective on yeah, how we experience plots <laughs> and, what we do, and what we do with it. So I really thought it was very interesting. And then I, I don't remember 
where I read this very recently. So if it was something that you said somewhere, please say so. Uh, but someone was speaking about the, the role of narrative and storytelling and media in dystopian novels in general. And they cited 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. I will have to find this and link it when we get to the notes. But this put such a different spin on it because I've always taken it to be kind of like that numbing factor to keep everyone from thinking too hard. And this was a very different twist on what it does to us and how it plays a role within the society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think we really, you know, on the one hand, narrative is pervasive around us. On the other hand, I think we kind of underestimate how important it is to us um, and how useful it can be because we tend to be like, oh, it's it's a story. It's definitely not true. You know, it's full of self-insert and wishful thinking and da da da. And and we don't really think about the degrees to which there are a lot of places where we can find statistics about human behavior and big data and you know, predictions about the way the economy is going to move or uh, any number of things. But there aren't that many places where we can look at to see really sort of how people act and the weirdnesses of individuals, the idiosyncrasies. I think, you know, there's narratives and then there's like ethnography of certain types. So I think that there's, there's a really important thing there that we're right now uh, in our society, the way it's designed right now, we're kind of glossing over. So... You know, I'm trying to trying to kind of bring us back to thinking really seriously yeah. about um, how those these stories tell us a lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I do want to make sure that we also talk about your new release, which will be within a couple couple of weeks of uh, being out for readers to grab when this releases. So tell us about the mimicking of known successes. It's, uh, so as I said, it's, it's kind of a Holmesian retelling, although it's definitely more atmospherically Holmesian. And it just, it takes a couple of those elements that I thought were really important, um, but it's not like a beat for beat um, by any means. Uh, and I took a lot of liberties because I really just wanted to, to, basically, I really wanted to write a story that was a fun, imaginative comfort read because I wrote it starting in like late 2020 and I desperately needed fun, comfort things to think about. Uh, so it's, and for some reason, yeah, like I said, I find murder mysteries and homes in ones really comforting. There's some dark academia in it because that's always fun and lots of just like bad weather outside and coziness inside and then long train rides. So I kind of just like shoved everything that I, I thought would be pleasant to write about into it. But then as I was writing, I also realized a lot of it was just about adapting to vastly different worlds and and the whether it's worth making sacrifices to get back to normal or whether we need to look into the you know the newness and just and just work with that so it became something much more about what what we were all going through um but so it's it's set on jupiter uh which is you know a little unusual but people have managed to settle there by creating these rings that go around the planet okay and they have really curious. platforms on the rings and then trains that go back and forth in between um and it's been several hundred years since humanity really messed up earth and had to move in a kind of desperate gambit to jupiter because they'd also messed up mars by that time way to go humanity <laughs> uh and so they Sounds have right. they have this whole like they have a whole culture and in particular they have a whole 
um, sort of academy with its history and um, eliteness. And the, the, the most prestigious thing to study is Earth and especially Earth ecosystems because there's this hope of reseeding Earth with life and being able to go back at some point when you know nature has healed itself, but let's give it a little help on the way. Um, and so the main character does this through reading old books and categorizing all the species that she finds in them and trying to like cross references with other old books. Because how do you know the proportion of different types of species that you want in an ecosystem? We have not counted, oh, especially yeah. before we started messing things up, we have not counted all these. So um, in the book, she's working on Watership Down and just... <sighs> Like rabbits eat so many different plants. And these are all the kinds of plants that you would find in this very small area um, at this time in this place. And, you know, these are the different animals and how they interact. And so it's, so that's like the, the academic kind of push is, is to do that. Um, but her ex-girlfriend is actually an investigator and is investigating the disappearance of a man who it turns out came from this university. And so she comes to her for help and they start trying to figure out what is going on. And that's, that's where the story kind of takes off. And I know from what I've read of your already existing work that, you know, it seems like one of your signatures is this sense of a world that is incredibly international in terms of who's where in what regions and this very strong blend of uh, like the in and out of just a wide range of cultures in any given spot, but also that kind of like core local culture too. Uh, you know, definitely in infomocracy and Ninth Step Station. So, but those are both much more near future worlds compared to us migrating to Jupiter. So is that something that still has a role here? And how do you do that? So that was, it was really interesting to try to figure out because it's been several centuries, as I said, that people have been on Jupiter. And you've got to assume that people were kind of piling into rocket ships and space stations for a while. And then they were like slowly building up this complicated infrastructure around Jupiter to, to be able to live on. So it seems really unlikely that people would be able to self-segregate um, in significant ways. Uh, Although we find out later, there's find out in book two, which we just announced, that there was a a massive attempt by basically really rich tech bros to to colonize Io, the moon of Jupiter, instead, and then um, they tried to fight off people who went wanted to join them, and then the settlement on Io failed because it's massively seismic and lots of volcanoes, and it just did not go well, and uh, so there's this like weird relationship between people from Io and people on Jupiter. And yeah, so, but most, for the most part, like people got, you know, the things that we think of as how we talk about who someone is and what they look like don't work in this place because it's, I'm not going to say everybody is all, you know, mixed. And so we don't have to worry about racism anymore because I don't think that has quite happened, but it's not, there's not the same sort of shorthand that we often use by saying where someone's from um, or certain things about them, their appearance that hint at where they're from. Um, and so, but, but I do imagine, especially on a place that's kind of isolated platforms, even if they have very good public transportation connecting them, that these, each of these platforms is gonna come, it's gonna develop its own identity, its own slang, its own 
fashion sense, its own you know, reputation among the other platforms. And so I've been trying to play with that and build that up. Um, you know, obviously quite a lot of it takes place on the university. So there's like a lot about how people see people at this university and how they see themselves and you know, what kind of slang they've developed uh, and, you know, and then how they treat people who are from somewhere else and, and vice versa. So that, it was really interesting to sort of take all those um, interests that I have in the way people interact across boundaries and borders and just completely like transfer it to this entirely new system. Talking to you is, um, it's really fascinating. Like I can tell like how much thought goes into like each of your ideas. So I can only imagine what it's like in, inside your head and you probably have like all these ideas all the time. How do you, how do you know when one is the idea that you want to like expat, expand on and like kind of attack and maybe see it, like nurse it into a story or even a book? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, I also don't want to give the wrong impression. Like I can talk a lot <laughs> and also, you know, most things we're talking about are books that I spent a lot of time thinking about and also have gotten asked about a lot. So I do have like, I have gone through all of this thinking, but I do tend to have a lot of ideas and, you know, basically if they kind of stick around in my head long enough, I write them down. And then if I have more things to, they kind of, you know, it kind of decides by itself because I put a bunch of things down on paper at the same time. I'm always working on lots of different projects that are at very different stages and some of them never get past certain stages. But, you know, I, I try not to spend too much time on stuff, but it happens. Like you can't, you can't avoid it because um, you don't always know. But I, you know, I try to either salvage things um, for other stuff or, or, you know, really put the time where I think something's, something's growing and developing. And then, you know, I find that the more I think about something, the more different ideas I have. So when I'm, I'm starting something that I think is going to be a, a novel or a novella, I tend to um, write down any ideas I have about the setting, the characters, any little tiny scenes um, or vignettes that come to mind. Regard, I, I usually don't have a good plot, a solid plot when I start. So I just write down a bunch of stuff and think about it. And as I get to know the characters in the place, the plot starts to emerge more and more. And I also, you know, I might have some ideas of what kind of plot I want. Like this, in this case, I knew I wanted to write a mystery and I knew I wanted it to be uh, maybe not entirely a puzzle box kind of mystery, but definitely that kind of golden age, you know, you have some characters, you have things going on. It's not like a true crime kind of mystery. It's not like a, a you know, a, a super grim dark mystery. It's going to be kind of not entirely cozy, but, but on the cozy side, um, and involve detective detection and thinking, right, and observation. So, you know, I kind of push a little bit in that direction and, and try to imagine and, and just layer things up. And I usually have about half or somewhere around, you know, not, not by any means fixed, but like somewhere around half the word count down before I start to think, okay, now I'm going to start at the beginning and try to connect chronologically and work from there. And, and like build it out and pull the, pull the joints together. So yeah, there's a lot of, I, I, I find that for, for world building and for character building, it's really helpful to me to have a lot of extraneous stuff that's not plot bearing so that it feels more real. And, um, and I also find that, that part really fun. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. I 
wanted to peek behind the veil a little bit. I guess it is time for <laughs> tropes out. So I think EJ explained, we will toss two tropes at you and uh, you will tell us your favorite and we'll talk about it. And that's, that's it. That's the game. <laughs> EJ, would you like to start or? Sure. Oh, which one to pick? Okay. Humanity destroyed earth like a space opera or humanity destroyed society like a post-apocalypse or something? <laughs> um, well, I mean, since my book is about humanity destroying earth, we're going to go with that one. Um, yeah, I and I tend to kind of, I don't know, I, I think right now post-apocalyptic just hits really close to home. I mean, humanity destroying Earth also hits really close to home, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also, I'm a sociologist of organizations, and so I'm really interested in how people work together, and, and I focus on disasters within that. So, you know, I'm really oh, interested in how people sure. like work together after disasters and come together or fall apart. And so, yeah, I'm more more on, on <laughs> not that, more on that side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very, that's really interesting. Cause I guess if you, if you think about it as long, if society survives, then, you know, we can continue elsewhere, but if we destroy society, then, then it doesn't really matter beyond that. It's less I guess. Fun. To me, destroying society is like really, grim most of the time like what's left over is just the monstrosity of humanity and us pitted against each other whereas destroying earth at least is like an impetus storytelling wise for like this wild open-ended anything that you can make up sort of thing as an author yeah and i think like 1984 to take a you know dystopian example it's a good book it's not fun it's not fun to read. I can't imagine it was fun yes. to write. And, you know, I think there's a huge value to books like that. I'm not saying we shouldn't read or write them. But, like, at this moment in time, I am trying to, to do things that are fun or pleasant or at least have fun <laughs> elements to them, like, please. <laughs> so. Yeah, if you're going to spend time with something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Not that thinking of, like, humanity destroying Earth is at all fun. But some, you know, we can imagine the aftermath, especially long after we can imagine some some fun and creativity and technology and different things happening there. I took two geology classes this past year and one was on natural disasters. And the ge geologists are snarky because my textbook was really, it was kind of funny because they would talk about like all these things we're doing and the writer would be like, and this is what we call an idiot zone people that have done these things and live in this area are just waiting to be crushed and i'm like well okay <laughs> yeah I, well i will tell you from a disaster studies sociology perspective how you can respond to them which well i mean i think we're probably on the same page with different terminology but we say there's no such thing as a natural disaster there are natural right. hazards that happen, like earthquakes, but the earthquake is only a disaster if it interacts with human, usually foolishness, but, but also like human construction, human settlement. You know, we've seen this obviously very recently. Like if you don't build buildings safely, then an earthquake is very dangerous. If you live in tents and don't have buildings, it's a lot less dangerous. If you build buildings properly, it's less dangerous. You know, a tsunami that if no one lives on the coast is, you know, not actually a disaster. Right, right. I think that's kind of what they were saying was like, these things are going to happen in these areas. And if you're there, then uh, 
they're still going to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, okay, I have another one for you. Let's go with Big Brother is watching or Mega Corporations rule. <laughs> um, so is this the one I want to write or the one that I want to live in? <laughs> you can interpret it Whatever however you, you choose. Want. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I mean, Big Brother sounds like it's picking up on what I just said about 1984. But <laughs> I mean, I think Honestly, if you read my book, it's a little bit both. <laughs> um, but but there is more sort of like, there are more cracks in the mega cor- corporation role in my book. So I'm going to have to go with Big Brother's Watching. Because, you know, even though Infomocracy, it's not really Big Brother because there's a ton of surveillance, but it's not all going to one place where only one group can see it. It's just open to everyone. Which is, I I like to argue, is a very different dynamic. But, you know, I think there's so much going on with surveillance right now and with privacy and with data that there's a lot of really interesting stuff to dig into there still. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot going on with mega corporations too. But again, like, (laughs) a lot of it is very depressing. Um, Like, I think surveillance, you know, it's possible to think of ways in which it can be used well or it can be used to turn the tables, or it can, or, you know, we can think about sort of interesting permutations of it. Um, and the trope of mega corporations tends to be like pretty similar as it's used, you know, without a lot of differentiation. Yeah, I like my uh, my capitalism as far from my policymakers as possible. Yes, please. <laughs> okay, and uh, last one, mm-hmm. secret baby or secret robot? Ooh, gosh, that's a great one. Uh, secret robot. Okay. Robots can do so much. <laughs> Babies, you know, eat, poop, and sleep. Yeah. So, you know, a secret one is interesting, but only if we think that, like, who is having babies with whom is interesting. Um, but the baby itself is, you know, just needs someone to sleep on. So a robot, <laughs> secret robot could be doing anything. Yeah, yeah. I like that take. We always ask the secret baby in some way because people from different genres and different perspectives have such wildly different takes on it. But the bottom line is almost always no one wants a baby because they're a lot of work. (laughs) They are a lot of work. Yes, for real. And in books, it's really hard to do babies right in books. So how would you interpret? We were kind of talking about this before the podcast, um, EJ and I. How would you interpret secret robot like when you think secret robot what do you think there could be there could be so many different interpretations of it like you could have a person who's actually a robot secretly or you could have a person who has a robot you know living here helping them do stuff and doesn't tell anyone um or you could have a person who has you know a sort of sci-fi ratatouille yes exactly exactly um or you could have a you know a robot that is beyond what we think robots can be right now that nobody's gonna that the people don't want to tell the world about or yeah I think there's so many different permutations for that which is why it's really interesting. I think we were landed on like people that are robots that didn't know they were robots yeah. was like the scariest. My brain goes one, straight maybe? to Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think that's our episode. Malka, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. Thank you for having me. It has been a blast. Before we wrap up, tell our listeners where they can find you and connect with you online. So as long as Twitter continues to tweet, (laughs) I'm there or until I just can't stand it anymore. I don't know. At the moment, I'm still on Twitter at M underscore older. And I'm also on Mastodon at older at wandering.shop. Um, I'm on Instagram at, as at infomocracy, although I don't really use it that much, but I'm using it a bit with pub, um, publicity stuff and like notices about where I'm going to be doing events. <clears throat> and uh, I have a Facebook author page. I have a WordPress page. You can find me pretty easily wherever I am by looking up my name and last name because they're not very common. Perfect. And uh, if you're looking for us as a podcast, you can find us at Typo Podcasts across most social media as well. If you enjoy the show, please spread the word and leave a review. And you can find books from Malka and all of our troped out guests at bookshop.org. Mm-hmm.